Good evening. Good to see you guys here tonight. We are continuing in John's Gospel. We're in chapter 15. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, open up to John chapter 15. And there's been a transition that's taking place after the Last Supper. We see that Jesus is now really focusing his conversation with his disciples. He's talking with them. He is dropped on them, in a sense, a bombshell that he was going to be given up, he was going to be leaving, and they've got all these questions, you know, where I go, you don't know, you can't follow, but the way you know, you do, you will follow, and Thomas goes, Lord, where are you going? I don't know, we can't follow you unless you tell us. And so Jesus is trying to give clarity, but they don't fully get it yet. And so he's trying to convey some very important things to help them understand what is going to be taking place and hold them through this time that they're going to be encountering. And so let's start reading from verse 1, chapter 15. Jesus speaks and he says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And Lord, as we look at these verses and the others that will follow, may our hearts be postured towards you. May we fight off distraction, Lord. May you speak to our lives and may we be changed because of it. Lord, these words are powerful, and may they be powerful in and through us, we pray. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a fairly familiar passage, at least among Christians. And when Jesus says, I am the true vine, when he says true, he's talking about genuine. And it's important that we see why he says, I'm the true, I'm the genuine vine. In Israel's history, there were many instances where they were to be an example or were used as an example of the vine. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, it says, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. And so he says that, Israel, you were the vine, but you let me down. Judah, you were the branches. You, You were supposed to be this representation of me, but instead you were filled with bloodshed and unrighteousness. Jeremiah, also in chapter 2, verse 21 says, I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. 
How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? And so there was this understanding and a picture in the the Jewish mind that Israel was to be this vine. And of course, vines were growing all around and Jesus often used illustrations that were familiar with the people of that time. And that's the smart thing to do when you're using illustrations, okay? Ones that people understand. Now, sometimes people get so hung up that we have to always use the exact same illustrations. But the point is, use something that can connect people to the truth that God is trying to reveal in a way that they can understand. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. And so as they see vineyards around them, many times growing up on the lattice work surrounding them, and he starts telling them, I'm the genuine vine. Their mind not only sees the vineyards that are around them, but also thinks, okay, well, Israel was supposed to be the vine, but now you are the true, the genuine vine. And one of the things that's important to understand that the whole purpose of Jesus coming, the whole purpose of John writing this gospel and the other gospels being written was to let us know that God had fulfilled something in Christ. That the work that God had begun in the very beginning through Abraham, through the law, through the nation of Israel was now completed in Jesus. And so in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And when there is something fulfilled, it means that it is complete. He's completed something that the law was there to do. And it's important to recognize this because the law was there to teach us, to give us instruction, illustration. But Jesus was there to meet the demands of the law, to fulfill them. And that's why when the gospel went to the Gentile nations, the Gentile nations did not continue in the Jewish traditions. In fact, in Acts chapter 7, they had a council to say, what are we going to do about these crazy Gentiles? They don't follow our laws. They don't eat our foods. What do we have to do? Do we have to require that they get circumcised? Do we have to require they follow our dietary laws? And they said, this seems good to us, that they abstain from fornication and food that is strangled or has the blood in it, and it was a type of worship, that they stay away from this pagan worship and they stay away from fornication, that seems good to us. And then Paul later on in Romans would say, don't let anyone judge you about new moons or Sabbath days or feasts or other days. Why? Because there's been a fulfillment. God is doing something and did something through Christ that is fulfilling what he required and now is fulfilled because of Jesus. It doesn't mean that the law wasn't good or wasn't sufficient. It was there for a purpose. It's like if I get on a boat and I sail, well, I wouldn't sail, but I would journey or drive whatever boats do, you know, in the water. I guess they drive. And I I always reveal how little I know of everything. And and so the boat goes and takes me to, you know, Europe somewhere. When 
I get off the boat, I no longer need that boat when I'm on dry land. Doesn't mean the boat wasn't necessary. It didn't mean that the boat didn't fulfill its purpose. Doesn't mean that the boat wasn't good. It might have been a great boat. But now that I'm on land, the purpose of that boat has been fulfilled. And Christ is coming, and as he's telling us, I am the true vine, he is fulfilling the purpose of God that God wanted to do through Israel, but Israel failed. And so now is this opportunity for this new work, this new covenant, which he is leading them into. And so as he tells them this, I am the true vine, my father is the gardener. He cuts every branch in me that bears no fruit. Now, there's been no definition to this point of what fruit is, but it is essential for our lives to be of value, and without it, we will be useless. We'll shrivel up and die. So instead of just thinking, well, what is fruit? Think about the fact that there has to be something produced in our lives. Otherwise, what is the purpose of our life? You can easily equate James and his teaching here. What good is a faith if it doesn't produce anything? A faith without works is a dead faith. And so if our lives don't produce something, what good are they? And so he's telling us there's uselessness. And not only is there a uselessness, but we will shrivel and die. We need to be attached to the vine. We need to have his life flowing through us. Otherwise, what is it in your life that it's going to be producing? And what's in your life that's essential? What in your life is of value? Without the things that are valuable in our lives, especially Christ, specifically Christ in this text, then we will shrivel up and wither and die. And connection to Jesus produces this. And verse 9, he gives some unfold meanings of these things. We'll look at it later. But our connection to God is going to be directly connected to how we are with others. And we see that time and time again. But first it starts off, you've got to be connected to me. If your life doesn't bear fruit, then it's of no use. He cuts off that branch. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Now that doesn't sound a whole lot better. Okay, you can either get cut off or you get pruned. Well, they're both cutting. But the whole idea of pruning is for further growth. If the the vineyard would just grow wild, random, then the branches would start going everywhere. And if the, the gardener didn't trim back those branches, there would be no fruit because all the life and energy would go to those continued branches. By cutting them back, it allowed more to develop in those branches that were close. So now fruit could develop. And so God is always working in our life and shaping and pruning our lives so that something can develop in it. It's not just to live. We don't just live. It doesn't just grow there. We're growing, but God is pruning us so that our growth is for a purpose. And this purpose is to produce this fruit. And we're going to be talking about this fruit and what we think it is here. But if we don't 
see this, if our lives don't produce this, and if we don't allow God's work in us, then it's going to be frustrating. It's going to wither. It's going to get old. And we can spend our lives on fruitless things. Anyone been there? Where you live your life and it's like, man, I'm just on this, you know, wheel. Was it a hamster's wheel or, yeah, guinea pig? I don't know. We had both. I think it was a guinea pig we had. But anyway, you're on that wheel and it goes nowhere. You just sit there and run and then it squeaks. Keeps you up all night. And so what's the purpose of living a life without it producing something of value? What, what good is it if a man gains the whole world, Jesus said, but forfeits it, loses his soul? Your life is here and it's a value. What is being produced in your life that's a value? And so there's a challenge here for us, and it's meant to challenge us to see, are we connected to the life of God? If so, the life of God is going to show up in how we live our lives. And then he says, you are already clean, verse 3, because of the word I have spoken to you. What do you think that means? How are they clean because of the word he spoke to them? Now, he already, remember just in chapter 13, when he was washing their feet, and Peter said, Lord, you won't wash my feet. And he goes, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. And then he says, well, don't wash just my feet, but my hands and my head. And he goes, no, if I wash your feet, then you are clean, and you are clean. Now what is he talking about? Is this a different cleansing? Because it's very specific. When he says, you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Any thoughts? Um, let's go there. It's chapter 13, verse 10. 13, verse 10, Jesus says, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And now you are clean, though not all, every one of you. So that's what he says there. Okay, you have, don't need a bath. If I wash your feet, and we talked about that be his cleansing preparation for service. But this seems to be a little different. You need something to be there clean now because of his word. What do you think that means? Any thoughts because of the word I have spoken to you? We could say for the word I've spoken to you, maybe the teachings that I have been given you. You're clean because I've been giving you the truth. The truth has set you free. The truth is now illuminated your understanding. You're clean because the words that I've spoken to you, not just words themselves, but the meaning of the words, what they are connected to. God and the truth of God has now made you clean. And, and so Jesus is really pointing to himself throughout this. I am the true vine. You're clean because of what I've given you, the things that I have told you. So what did he tell them? He told them who he was, right? He is the Messiah. That's been revealed. He's constantly revealing that to them. And so the understanding of him being the promise, that is what's going to give them this understanding. Because he hasn't yet gone to the cross, 
So there is still an atonement that needs to be made, but the words that he's been speaking to them have started something within them already. We know that he could not have given them his spirit yes, yet, because he was not yet risen. He did not yet die and come back to life, and that's when the spirit would come. He's going to tell us later. And so there's something very important about the teachings of Jesus that are able to cleanse us. What do they cleanse us from? I feel like crickets should be chirping right now. A sinful nature? What, what does that mean? What does a sinful nature mean? How does the words and teachings of Jesus cleanse us from a sinful, sinful nature? What does he mean by clean? Or what in his words, how does his words make us clean and clean from what? So he has the authority to bring the cleansing. Back in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus said, you are the light of the world, who is he talking to? He was talking to the multitude. He was telling this whole group of people that they were the light of the world. That's what he was declaring that they were. Now, were they all living as the light of the world? No, doubtful, right? I mean, we don't know all of them. There are thousands of them there. But the odds are they weren't living to what God had called them to be. And what Jesus was doing was trying to help them to understand who God had created them to be. It wasn't just you 12 are the light of the world. Those other 3,000, I don't know what they are. Okay, he was saying, you are the light of the world. And he was trying to connect them to the fact that they were created in the image of God and therefore their lives were supposed to be representing who their creator was. And now he wants them to line who they are with who they're supposed to be. And that's exactly what he, the Messiah, is doing, is coming to fulfill their inability so they can, without fear or judgment, come before God and be who God has called them to be. And so when his word has cleansed us, in a very real sense, we are clean because Jesus has given us the understanding of who God is and how God loves us. And God has demonstrated that love completely, perfectly through his son, Jesus, who gave himself, was going to give himself to the world. The truth that he spoke is what cleanses us. That makes sense? It's the truth that he is declaring about who God is, who he is, and who we are in relationship to him and God is what gives us the cleansing. Now we see clearly Jesus is the Messiah. God desires us to be in relationship with him. God has given us the Messiah so that we can be in relationship with him. And this is what cleanses us. These are his words. These are the truths that he's been speaking throughout his time. His fulfilling those things that the prophets have talking about, have spoken about before. And so when he says, 
You are clean because of the words I spoke. It's very literally, literally the things that he's been teaching them and all the things he's been, he's been teaching them have to do with who he is. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm getting, so I'm like, uh, okay. And that's why he goes on and he says, remain in me. As I also remain in you, no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine, the true vine, Jesus. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. He is the source of life. John talked about that in the very beginning. In him was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. We beheld his glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is who Jesus is. You need to remain in this truth. You need to remain in me. Your life is connected to who I am. And that's what will produce fruit in your life. And and so he is telling us really about who he is, the true vine, the promise of God to the people and the necessity to remain in him so that our lives can be connected to the life of God and produce things that are filled with his life. And so now we get to understanding what is this fruit? Well, this fruit is the things that God would be doing. And we'll go on from that a little bit more. He discloses that. Verse 5, he says, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Now, it's kind of a, it's just going to happen, right? If I'm in you and you're in me, well, you might make some fruit, No, it says you will produce fruit. You can't help but produce fruit if you stay with me. So then that challenges us. Do you ever feel like, well, I'm going to church, you know, I'm praying, I'm reading, but there's no fruit in my life? Has anyone ever been there? What's going on? Why isn't my life producing fruit? Maybe it's just time. Maybe I'm being pruned. Or maybe I'm not really connected to the vine the way I'm supposed to be. Now, immediately we start thinking, oh, no, I'm not saved. I'm I'm lost. But I don't think that's the intention that Jesus is talking about here. I think he's talking about our lives producing something very similar to what James taught. Otherwise, what good? It's good to be tucking up and thrown away and burned. Because that's what he goes on. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burn. That's all those branches are good for. They're not good for anything else. They're good for firewood. And so he's saying, if our lives don't produce anything, they're not of value. He's not necessarily talking about the final judgment, but the consequences of that current state of not producing fruit. Remember, he's talking to his disciples here. This is now very specific to them. Judas is even gone. So he's talking to the 11 who are going to be with him. They're going to deny him and these things are going to take place. They're going to scatter, but they are going to ultimately give their lives for him. And so he's telling them, if you don't stay with me, your life will wither, it will die, and it's good for nothing. It'll just be chopped up, thrown in the fire, because that's all that a life that has no life in it is good for. 
And so instead of wondering or, or fearing, oh no, is my life producing fruit? Am I saved or am I going to be burned in hell? Think of it in this way. If I'm not producing anything, what value is my life to God? How then can I abide in him? How can I remain in him? How can I get close enough to him where his life starts to flow through me? And what does that look like when his life flows through me? How will people know that I am his disciple? Anybody? Love. Okay. We're getting to the point, right? By your love will all men know that you are my disciple. And so if we are remaining in him, then the fruit of our life is going to be love for other people. I know people who read the Bible, know the Bible really well, but there's not a lot of love in their life. I'm not one who's going to stand over them and judge them. I just get from them this. They don't really care for people. They kind of are always blasting people. You know, they say they are close to God, they love God, but then they go around just ridiculing and, you know, slandering and doing terrible things, some people. But they say they belong to Jesus. And you stand back and you just say, "Mm, I'm not seeing the fruit of what it means to be a follower of Christ, to be abiding in that vine. I'm not seeing what should be coming from your life. Now, love looks, you know, different in different relationships. There's time where love does have to show, you know, uh, a type of correction. You could love someone, your children, and bring discipline. That's a type of love. But, But there are other people, they're not trying to discipline. They're really just trying to condemn. And that's not... The love of God. Jesus didn't even condemn. If he didn't condemn, I'm not going to. He had the right to. I don't. And so if we remain in him, our lives produce this fruit, and we're seeing that this fruit really is going to be love. Otherwise, it's worth nothing. It'll be withered, thrown away, thrown into the fire. It'll be burned. And it it does speak of a useless life. What what good is a useless life? If, verse 7, you remain in me and my words remain in you, the truth of who I am, the truth of what I'm telling you, who you are in relationship to God, this is my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Okay, verse 9. And the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. See how we just went from branches to love? There's a real connection there. There's supposed to be. We've gone from the branches bearing fruit to now my father has loved me. I've loved you. Remain in me. I will remain in you. There's a real connection between the branches, the vine, the love, and us. What's happening here? This is the love of God being destroyed. Demonstrated to us, given to us. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. So there's how we remain in his love, by obeying him, by following after him. Now Jesus 
said some real interesting things about the commandments. In fact, it was written down so we would know what is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. Keep my commandments, love, abide. This is all working together. Can you feel it? Can you feel it? There's momentum coming here, okay? If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Okay, so we've been talking about staying abiding in Jesus, who is our life and is our love, and that his life will flow through us and produce this love because God loves us and he is in us and now we are in him and he has given us this so that we could remain in his love and he's told us this so his joy would be full and that your joy may be complete. So how is our joy complete? Obedience. And what does that obedience look like? I mean, I want this joy, don't you? I want my joy to be complete. Give it to me. What is it? Well, I'm not going to tell you. Nope, it's a secret. No, it's right here. He's been talking about it, that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. You want your joy to be complete? Love people, and your joy will be complete. Wasn't that hard, was it? It was right there. You want joy? Love others, and you will find joy. You know, as a parent, and you have children, you you love your kids, just because they're your kids and you get attached to them. And, you know, you, you think your kids are cute and other kids, are, you know, your babies are cute. The other ones are kind of fat and wrinkly, but mine is cute, you know, for some reason. Even though they're bald and, you know, look like many sumo wrestlers, mine are cute, you know. You just love your kids. And, and as they grow up, you you don't stop loving them because of, the foolish things they do. And in fact, as a parent, you want to help them not to do foolish things and it's because you love them. You know, stay out of the pool with your bicycle. I love you. Don't jump off anything higher than 12 feet unless there's sand or something soft. You just, you love your kids and so you, you try and help them along and even through the teenage years when there's really no reason to love them at all. You can't help but still love them. And then when they return that love or they show kindness towards you or even towards others, it just fills your heart with joy. Fills your heart with joy. I, I can remember going out to have dinner with my son. 
and we went out to have sushi. Whenever I go out and see him, we have sushi because Kareen can't eat fish because she's got an allergic reaction. So whenever I'm with him, we get fish because I love sushi. And we sat down and we had this conversation and, and he's grown now, he's married and he's moving on in his life. And we just had the most wonderful conversation. And when I hear things that he's doing and, you know, he just traveled to Switzerland and to London and then, I don't know, they went somewhere else and they're living this charmed life, right? And, you know, part of you is thinking, hey, you know, you're, you're happy without me, you know? <laughs> And then part of you is just filled with joy. It just warms your heart to see that he's doing well and to have a dialogue with him that's just meaningful. Oh, man, it was just enriching. Our joy is made full when we love other people, when we care. That's what completes this joy. That's what he's talking about here. This is connected to the love that God has given to us. We will only be able to demonstrate this love clearly if we remain in him because he is our example. As he has loved us, we're to love each other. Greater love, verse 13, has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants. Now, that's a powerful verse. Okay. First of all, you are my friends if you do what I command. Anyone ever hear that and think, wait, that's kind of like, you know, I have to do what you say to be your friend. I'm not just your friend. Again, if we are not abiding with him, then that friendship is severed. Okay. We remain in him and that friendship flows to us. And it's really more for our sake. It's not like me coming up to Joe and saying, Joe, you can be my friend if you do whatever I tell you. Go wash the car. You know, I mean, it's like, it's not that kind of a thing. Here's someone who has given his life. He's giving his life for us. We're his friends if we obey his commands. And again, his commands to love God, love others as we love ourselves. And so those are his commands. And then he no longer calls us servants, but he calls us friends because a servant doesn't know what the master is doing. Now, the word servant, it's a slave. It's a doulos. That was actually a position of honor to Paul. He says, I am the Lord's bond slave. James says the same thing. We even see that Moses and Joshua, David were all servants of the Lord. And so it's a great position, but Jesus has something even greater and more personal. He wants us to know what he is doing. Just like Abraham, who was the friend of God. Why was Abraham a friend of God? Because God told Abraham, I'm going to use you to bring about many nations. I'm going to bless the world through you. He confided in Abraham his plan. We are now friends because Jesus is confiding in us his plan for the world. He is letting us in. We're on the down low. We're on the inside scoop. He's giving us understanding we are no longer just servants because a servant doesn't know what his master's 
doing. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Now, that's a good verse, right? Whatever we ask in his name, the Father will give us. A servant, back in verse 15, doesn't know what the Father's business is. A friend knows what the Father's business is. So what Jesus is saying, whatever we ask in my name, being a friend, knowing the Father's business, then he will give us. And it's basically saying whatever you ask according to his will. Okay? So it's not like, yeah, okay, cool. There comes the Ferrari, right? The Lamborghini. I saw a Lamborghini today. I prayed. God. (laughs) I didn't. I just coveted. So... (laughs) Whatever we ask in his name is connected to the fact that we know his will because we are his friends, because we are in line with those things. And this, again, is his command, love each other. This whole passage is hinging on this, this loving one another, loving God and loving one another. It's not some other mystical, mysterious truth. It really is the culminating all that Jesus has taught us throughout the gospel. He's bringing the conclusion that we need to stay connected to that truth, and it all hinges on love. Now, are there any questions in these passages? Because there's a few questions I have, but I want to hear your questions, just in the things that we've read, things that maybe stand out to you, or things that you're not certain about, or not certain with I'm about. (laughs) not certain about those things either. Any things? Yes. This verse. Some people do. So let's talk about that verse. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. A person who comes to faith in Christ we are told in Ephesians that they are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So, when you come to faith, putting your trust in Jesus, you are righteous. Why are you righteous? Because you're in Jesus. When you're chosen, God chose you. Why did he choose you? Or who did God choose? He chose those who come to him through Jesus. It seems like anyone who makes the choice to follow after Jesus is now chosen by God. In other words, maybe the same way that we are righteous in God's sight is the same way that we are predestined in God's sight. And it's actually all through Jesus. So God has loved everyone through Christ. God has righteousness available to everyone through Christ. And God has predestined everyone through Christ. But people still need to appropriate that to make it a reality in their lives. A person isn't righteous outside of what Jesus has done. And a person isn't chosen outside of what Jesus has done. That's a thought. Um, 
Again, remember what Jesus said in chapter 5 when he talked to the multitudes. You are the light of the world. Why would he say that to all of them, that they are a city on a hill that can't be hid? Why is he including everyone if everyone isn't included? Maybe everyone is included, but as we saw a few chapters back, they have to come through the door that God has appointed and set, which is Jesus. And we we talked about that quite a bit. I don't want to go down that road again. That was a tough one, Um, but important. And so maybe God has chosen them like God chooses everyone through Jesus. Does that make sense? Just like God makes everyone righteous through Jesus who come to him through that means. That's one way of thinking it. You know, God has the right to make choices and he chooses us, but it doesn't mean he excludes others. We never see God saying, I didn't choose them. And in Romans chapter 8, where it's used to, you know, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, you know, that whole passage, man, here we go. Um, has more to do with God being more merciful than the Jewish people were at that time. In other words, the whole purpose of the Roman letter was to help the Jews see that the Gentiles were included in God's promise. And when he uses that analogy of Jacob and Esau, Jacob was the second born. Esau was the first born. Jacob, Esau was never told by God, I don't like you, I hate you. But what it was was a representation of what Israel had become. And Jacob, the second born, was an image of the Gentiles because that's the whole theme of the book. And so when he's saying, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, he's not saying I hate this person. He's saying I hate what the Israel has become in rejecting the truth and rejecting these people. So we don't see God saying, I don't like some people, I do like some people. I think that's important to understand. And so I have chosen you doesn't mean I didn't choose anyone else. I only chose these certain people. And maybe we are all chosen as we come through Christ. What's that? But, I mean, this is a... How do we know the mind of God? I mean, let's face it. All these things are, are... We are limited. We're limited to what he's disclosed in Scripture and revealed those things to us. But I think he's revealed enough about himself to help us understand clearly who he is and what these things look like. And so there's certain things I am pretty sure about because they're concerning me. I know more about me than I know about a lot of things because I'm me. Okay. And it also connects me to other people. I know probably more about you than I know about other things because you're a human being like me. You have like passions. You have the desire to have a meaningful life, to be loved, all those things. We all have certain things in common. And so we know some things about us that we can be certain of. And I think God reveals himself through these pictures like a father loving a son, those kinds of illustrations, so that we could have a deeper understanding of him. And so... 
you know, I was talking to Corrine just last night, and we were talking about the same idea. Well, God chooses some and doesn't choose other. And I noticed that most of the people who make these kinds of statements are men. I can't think of a mom who would say, or you could go to a mom, so how would you feel if God didn't choose one of your kids? Can you imagine that? Uh-uh, I can't go there. Well, how about their kids? Can you imagine God not choosing one of their children? What about babies or five-year-olds or three-year-olds? Did God choose them? What if a three-year-old dies in an accident? Did God choose them? God choose all little ones, but then when they get older, he doesn't choose them anymore? There's just so many questions I'd love to ask. And ask just because it doesn't seem in line with the God who we've been looking at through Scripture, who gives his life for all. And then just say, oh no, all means just the elect, just some. Okay, so which one of your kids did God not pick? And mom, are you okay with that? I don't know any mom. I don't know any dads either, but moms go down kicking and screaming. You take my son over my dead body. You know, it's like, no way. That's not going to happen. I'm going to do everything. So what, does mom love the kids more than God? No, that's kind of scary, right? So... God has given us these illustrations and understanding so we could better know him. And so it's not like he chose us means he didn't choose anyone. He chose us through Christ. That's what I believe it says. Any other questions? That's a good question. Sorry, I got off on that answer a little bit. but Well, makes sense to me. I won't go. I got a million questions, but we'll stay on topic here. I agree. I mean... You know, there's one instance, I think it's in Romans, where Paul says, before I knew the law, I was I was free or something before I knew the law. And when I came to the know, the, or I was alive before I came to know the law, but when I came to know the law, then I died. And it seems to be like when he was young, he was innocent. When he came aware, then he died and he had to come around. There's, so there's, you know, some elements to that, but... Yeah, there's a lot of questions you can ask with children, especially with Jesus' love for children. But I'm not going to ask them right now. So we'll we'll get way off topic here. Um, Where did I leave off? Oh, this is my command, that you love one another. Any more questions or thoughts on these passages? Okay, we're going to finish. We can do this. Verse 18. If the world hates you, Keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. There's that connection. Friends, we're doing what the Father says, hearing him. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my Father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my Father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. When the Advocate comes, 
one who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. When Jesus says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me. When John wrote this, this hatred had long since begun. Okay, remember, John is writing from this point in time, looking back to when Jesus spoke of it. So from the time of Jesus to where John is at, there already has developed this hatred. There's been a lot of animosity against the Christian world from the Jews and then also from the Roman world. The Roman world saw the Christians as being unpatriotic and not worshiping. There's a very specific intent here in these passages because he keeps talking about them, their law. So he's talking about the Jewish leaders very specifically. At this point, the world he is talking about is the world that they know. They hate me because... You know, they they didn't see the works I did from God and they don't love God because they don't love me. If they saw these works, then they would have known, but their own law says they hated me without a reason. So he's really talking about the Pharisees, the Sadducees. And so when he says the world, he's talking about those who are outside of the working that God is doing at this point. Okay, it doesn't mean the whole world because God so loved the world that he gave his son. So did he hate the world or is the world our enemy? And there, you have to have distinctions. The world doesn't always mean the same thing. And here the world is speaking specifically to those who were against what Christ stood for at this time. And it would uh, also stand for those who are against Christ at our time. That would be considered the world. There are a lot of governments that are anti-Christian who you can throw into there, the world will hate you because they hate me. Why? Because they're against the things that Christ stood for, so they'll be against you. And again, John had seen this very clearly when he's writing this. He's already seen Christians put to death when he's looking back and saying, Jesus told us this was going to happen. This isn't surprising. We should know this because he told us about this before it happened. This dividing thing. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. Any questions in this last portion? There's some interesting things in there. But I'll let you guys bring them up. No? Yep, they were martyred for their faith in Christ. And it happens still today. There are still many Christians who are martyred. Uh, Happening, it's going on and on. And so his words still ring true. No other questions? Okay. When he closes in verse 26, or when, how we close here, because he doesn't actually close the chapter there, is actually going to kind of interrupt what we're going to, but I thought we'd stop there because it does lead into where we're going. The advocate comes. We know that it's the spirit of truth that he will send from the Father, and he goes out from the Father. He will testify about me, And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. And so Jesus is giving us a promise that there is going to become an advocate. And and this is a great word. Um, You know, the King James, I think it says comforter. But it's someone who is going to come and represent us. 
you know, someone who is going to come alongside to help us, and that's the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus, again, is trying to help the disciples not go into a spiral of depression, okay? Because they're already heading down. You're leaving, where are you going? How can you leave us? You know, why can't we follow you? What does he mean, a little while, and then he's going to come back? He's going to talk about that later on. And so they're already heading down, and Jesus says, don't worry, you're not going to be alone. Someone's going to be with you. And he's giving them a promise, and that promise is for us as well. Okay? Well, if there are no more questions, let's pray and eat the cookies and drink the coffee and enjoy each other's company. Father, you have challenged our hearts time and time again. Lord, that you have us here for a reason. And that reason is to represent you to the world around us, that our lives are to produce this love. And love is to show up in the things that we do, in the words that we speak, and how we care about people. Love is to show up and that we are able to represent you to the world around us. We are able to further this spreading of the good news. And so, Lord, may we look at our lives and may we be challenged to see if we are producing any of these things, if love is evident in us, if we are known because of how we care about each other and how we care about the people around us, or are our lives selfish? Are we self-centered? Are we focused on just our own things and living for ourselves? God, may we be challenged by your words and see where we are at. And Father, may we recognize that as you have revealed the truth of who you are to us, that you have also, with that, given us the ability to make a difference, that we can ask in your name and you will hear and answer. Lord, we ask that you would give us Upland, that you would give us Rancho Cucamonga. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be an example to the communities that we live in, to the places where we work, to our friends, our family. We ask, Lord, that we would be instruments for your glory. And so, Lord, our prayers want to be in line with your heart. We desire that you would use us for your purposes. And I thank you for this time, Lord. May we remember the things you prompt in our hearts and take them with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.